quick note before we begin, this podcast had to be recorded remotely because of the pandemic. So the audio quality may not be as high as we're used to. Welcome to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. The coronavirus pandemic is arguably the most strenuous test of leadership that local, state, and federal policymakers have faced or will face during their tenure in office. In the world of education, leaders at all levels, from the White House to the State House, all the way down to the Schoolhouse, have to make difficult decisions about how to best protect and serve communities. What's more, especially in public school systems, decisions at upper levels can help or hinder local decision makers and educators' actions. Today on the report card, I talk with Governor Jeb Bush about leadership amid the coronavirus pandemic. Jeb Bush served as the 43rd governor of Florida from 1999 to 2007. Previously, he served as Florida's Secretary of Commerce. Today, he wears a number of hats, but most relevant to our listeners, he's the founder current president and chairman of the Foundation for Excellence in Education. Governor Bush, welcome to the report card. A joy to be with you to talk about leadership in a time of crisis, which I think is is really important these days. Indeed, and you're no stranger to leadership's demands, but as you said, you know, this is a strange time and a strange time to be a leader, but you've recently spoken out about how the pandemic is shining a light on the importance of leadership. Tell our listeners a little bit about what you wrote in that op-ed. Well, I think the task at hand by the Wall Street Journal was to ask people what will be different in the post-coronavirus era. And I think a greater appreciation for servant leadership, for competency in government, where public leaders accept responsibility for leading through crisis rather than blaming others. All those things will become more relevant. I also think that our country's greatness is really not defined by Washington. No disrespect for people who live up there, but it's defined by how we interact with one another, our our culture. And we're a bottom-up country. And if you don't obsess about the evening press conferences that go on for a couple hours every day and think and look at what's going on around the country, people are donating money so restaurants can stay open to provide food and and meals for emergency doctors and nurses and first responders. We're, We're acting on our compassion to be able to help our fellow man during this time of crisis. We're a bottom up country. And I think there's a greater appreciation for that as, as well. My, that's my hope, at least. I, some of this is my, my aspirations for the country rather than what I anticipate happening. But, but I do think as people see superintendents of schools and mayors and governors leading through these crises in a way that gives people hope that there's going to be a better day, that they begin to realize that we need to take more responsibility for our own future, starting in our families, in our communities, and then moving out beyond that. And Washington then can play a proper role, but it's a supportive role. It's not a role of where we outsource, you know, our our hopes and dreams to the food fight between Congress and the White House, for example. Of course. And holding good aspirations for the country is fine in my view. You know, looking back, most of us were sort of concerned with the dearth of respect for leadership and expertise. I wonder what you saw that was sort of behind that view that sort of dominated our culture and discourse? 
Well, I think a lot of distrust for expertise and experts uh, is well-founded. I think a lot of experts, you know, had some pretty bad views pretty consistently. And people saw that and lost faith in institutions. And politicians have exploited that notion. But when you see a pandemic come and you have epidemiologists, you have public health experts who have dedicated their lives to this, speaking with such authority and giving people a sense of what we need to do together to, to go through this, I think it, it, it is kind of a gut check time. You know, I think we just, we can't always fall prey to our angst. We have to also believe that there are some science-based solutions to things. You know, I have a particular interest, as I know you do, in schools. And it's remarkable the difference between, say, the Miami-Dade school district that had been planning to make sure that there was uh, digital learning available for all of its 300,000 plus students compared to other school districts that made the case, gosh, we can't provide any digital learning because not everybody has access to it. So we're just not going to teach. I mean, the difference between anticipating the crisis and managing through it compared to this defeatist kind of attitude is striking. And so I think more and more parents will begin to see that there are great examples of how, how to deal with crisis and how to solve these problems. And then there's going to be abysmal failures as well. In your op-ed, you mentioned old school inspired leadership. I'm wondering, as you look across, you talk about Miami-Dade County, and this can be an education or otherwise, where are you seeing that old school inspired leadership highlighted? You know, I, I think I first saw it with uh, Mike DeWine, governor of Ohio, who listened to the experts, listened to uh, business leaders, listened to a bipartisan group of elected officials that served with him and acted decisively in a way that is, is pretty inspiring. And he became kind of a cult hero. So I have a lot of respect for him for that. Uh, and he led, and he's leading today, and he's doing a great job. There's examples. I think Governor Cuomo is someone who has had the right balance of giving people the proper information, not, not being Pollyannish about what the status is for, for New York State, but also giving people hope that there's going to be a brighter day, using good humor, connecting on a, you know, on a personal level. You have, to, you have to show your heart in these kind of circumstances, and, and you have to be I think have to show some humility that it's not about the public servant. It's about the people that you're serving that really matters. So I, I see examples of it all across. I, I see it in, in businesses, uh, philanthropy, uh, certainly and among mayors and governors. Also guys like Anthony Fauci, who has been incredibly important in giving people hope that we can get through this. There are great examples across every aspect of American society of what leadership should be about. Leadership is part about preparedness. And I, I know a lot of folks weren't prepared for a pandemic. Now, you were the governor of Florida from 1999 to 2007. And while you were at the helm in Florida, you faced a number of large-scale crises from 9-11 to a number of hurricanes that came over Florida. How do those experiences inform your understanding of what it means to be prepared for emergencies and how to act no matter how prepared you are? Well, we had eight hurricanes and four tropical storms in 16 months, about $200 billion of uninsured and insured losses. So that experience kind of etched my soul uh, in many ways because it really was a time when you have to step up when people are expecting government to work far more effectively than just when, when things are going okay. 
And I was inspired by the people that I got to work with. And we got better as we went along. It was chaotic. There's nothing easy about dealing with a, a crisis. And this one is even worse because it affects everybody. When a storm hits Florida, we can count on the utility workers from South Carolina and Texas and Kansas to come and rewire the state. But when you have a pandemic that's impacting the entire country, you've got a, a bigger issue. So I have enormous respect for people that are in the positions of responsibility right now. But what you learn in those kind of circumstances, first of all, you have to, as I said, have humility to make it about the people that you're trying to serve. You have to put a human context around this to give people hope. Secondly, you have to anticipate what the problems are. And so today, the, the president is struggling with this, and the Congress is, and certainly all the governors. When do we open up? What are the signals we'll have to know whether it's proper to open up? How do we open up schools and deal with the atrophy that takes place in the summer that's going to be even more pronounced for students that haven't had the kind of intensive education? All of those things right now are what uh, people in public life, not just you know school board members and superintendents of school, but governors as well and policymakers at every level need to start thinking about this. And and I learned that, you know, through trial and error, that you have to be anticipating what the next issues are while you're dealing with the current here and now. It's exhilarating, to be honest with you. It's, it's the best time to serve is when there is a crisis and the chance to be able to help people when they really need it is, is something that should be joyful. I find it depressing when elected officials kind of give, give the impression that it's such an overwhelming burden. What a, what a sacrifice they're making when they should have a joy to be able to serve people in these times of crisis, because that's, that's ultimately, if you had to pick the one time you want your public servants to be working correctly would be during this time of crisis. And the, the simple fact is that we'll get through this and there'll be lots of lessons learned on the education space. Certainly there'll be lots of opportunities to to learn, for example, we have snow days. We don't have snow days in Florida, but there are school districts that have to suffer through snow days, and they actually plan for those days. Why wouldn't we have days where we have online learning be the norm, where we teach teachers how to teach online, where we have strategies to make sure that there's access to digital learning, where we uh, try to innovate in new approaches to deal with what may become a, a, a more common thing. This, this pandemic isn't uh, necessarily going to go away in the summertime and never come back. I think we have to begin to plan for this on a long-term basis. How do we take advantage of this opportunity to transform how we teach and how we learn so that we move to a, a system that, that is more customized for the unique needs of each student? Yeah, well, it, it certainly looks like we're going to be learning a lot in the education space because reinventing education is what's been going on in a lot of places. I'm interested, specific to the pandemic, you know, a lot of our listeners don't really know what governors are prepared for and all the background. Uh, you were governor, I guess, before H1N1, I think, but yeah. after SARS. Did, did Florida have a specific sort of pandemic playbook prepared? Absolutely. And it was, it was driven, I'll, I'll be honest with you, it was driven by my brother and driven by his administration and the Congress funded lots of support. What we did back then, and I assume it's still, the, I hope it's still the norm, was we trained for pandemics. I'll never forget, we had a training session with local governments and state governments in our emergency operations center. It was a full day training session. 
where we had a dirty bomb hit the port of Miami and this poison gas, if you will, kind of slowly emerged into downtown Miami at the same time that there were terrorists who self-infected themselves with smallpox, flew an Air France plane from Paris to Orlando and went to Disney World. Hmm. And we spent the, the whole day trying to deal with these two crises at once. It was scary. <laughs> I mean, the fact was that we didn't handle it as well as we went through the process and, you know, we saw these, the, the potential of this. And so training was a key element of this. There was all sorts of state and federal funding for, for storage of the kind of equipment that we need. I don't know what's, what happened between then and now, but that's the kind of thing that state governments have to do with great regularity and they have to coordinate with local communities because, again, we're a bottom-up country. There's an expectation that uh, at the local level, the first responders handle the crises. If they're overwhelmed, then the state comes in. And then the federal government plays a supportive role. The idea that you trample over the 10th Amendment in a, in a national crisis is, is wrong. And uh, maybe some constitutional education would be appropriate right now in Washington. <laughs> I hear you there. You know, it's been suggested that some states that are used to experiencing major disruptions to school systems, from floods or hurricanes or blizzards, that they might have had a bit of an advantage just by being prepared. Does that ring true to you? Yeah. No, I think um, the experience of dealing with hurricanes in 2004 and five, we had eight hurricanes and four tropical storms, made us better prepared for all sorts of things, for sure. You, you, it becomes kind of embedded in uh, every aspect of what you do. So, you know, if schools have been trained, have been planning for this, school districts, they have plans in place to be able to deal with how you operate a school district, large or small, we can't go to the school site. There's all sorts of plans that if you're serious about this, you, you train for it and you're prepared for it. Having said that, to me, it's inexcusable that there are school districts that just woke up one day and said, oh my God, not every student in our, in our school system, I think Berkeley's an example of this and, and a couple others, more than, more than there should be, that said, we can't provide access to education digitally to every child, so we're not going to provide it. I mean, that is ask backwards. That is, that is the wrong approach. The approach ought to be, oh my God, not everybody can access digital learning. Let's make sure that they can, rather than excuse it away as some kind of social justice situation. And so the lack of leadership there and the excusing away of why you couldn't do something, I find horrific. And parents, you know, suffer because of that. They want their children to learn and teachers want to be able to, to teach. And I think school districts have a responsibility to deal with these crises in a far more effective way. Yeah, we, we have been doing some data collection at AEI just to try and get a sense of what's going on across the board. Certainly, we've seen some districts that have a lot of devices and have the architecture already set up to provide digital learning and, and able to move. And we've seen others that have to get 30,000 Chromebooks out the door and figure out who needs them. And you can, you can just see in that data, the differences across districts really depend on where you're starting from. Yeah, uh, exactly. And then, and then states, you know, can step up as well. I know that Richard Corcoran, the commissioner of education here, his efforts 
have yielded thousands and thousands of Chromebooks to be able to be provided, particularly in the rural areas where the access to uh, technology is, is more limited. So it's interesting to see how people respond to crisis. Some, you know, some get into the fetal position and kind of say, it's not my fault, you know, hopefully it'll go away. Others see it as a great opportunity to try different things to be able to, to solve problems. Yeah. It certainly seems that, you know, when it starts to rain and it's going to rain for a while, you better learn how to work in the rain. And I think that's where a lot of folks find themselves now. But there's a chance, of course, maybe even this school year, that some of these states that have closed all their schools might open if they get past the curve. You know, hope springs eternal and all that. Sure. So, uh, you know, I wonder about that difficult decision, not just to close schools, but whether we might reopen them. How do you think governors and district leaders should approach that decision? Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the next big decision for sure. And it, it isn't an easy one. But, you know, look, using the hurricane experience as an example, the two things that we found were the most important things to happen to bring back some normalcy in people's lives was getting power, getting the grid built up for, for critical infrastructure for sure and getting schools open. Because if schools aren't open, mom and dad can't work. And if mom and dad can't work, we have a spiraling economic situation, the likes of which we haven't experienced in the last 90 years. I mean, this is, this is a huge problem. So what I, what I think will happen is there'll be a whole series of different kind of guideposts that local and state leaders will lay out. Gavin Newsom did it this, this week interesting the the filtering system that he used i think there were seven principles that would be applied all of which seem commonsensical to me the implementation will be hard but if you have testing and you can screen effectively i think getting getting kids back in the classroom is going to be critical for the recovery of the country and so doing that in a way that is safe and making sure that you have adequate testing to constantly monitor the situation, I think is the, is the path forward. What happens in the classroom will also be an interesting thing. It could be that there's some lessons learned in this regard and that maybe we have a, a more customized learning experience, recognizing that every child learns in different ways at different paces. Maybe we end up doing hybrid grades where, you know, fourth and fifth grades are combined, where, some kids may have excelled in, in learning during this environment. Other kids didn't have access to the quality that we hope and that they may need more remediation. Maybe we start school earlier rather than wait till August or September. Maybe we do the assessments that were supposed to be done in the spring and the fall to create a baseline for accountability for the next school year. I think there shouldn't be one means by which we, we deal with this, but I think letting policymakers come up with you know, a whole array of choices that we can look at, I think will enhance public education over the long haul. You know, in your op-ed, you wrote, we need to use today's crisis as a learning opportunity. And I hear that, what you're saying about education. And some of these are, you know, sort of the, well, we, we could do these things. And, and I appreciate those and we'll see them. But I'm also hearing a lot of takes and people writing saying, here's how the world's going to change. And here's how the pandemic's going to change schools forever, which I know is speculation. Um, and I'm going to ask you to speculate. When you think about the long-term changes in schools, what are some of the top things that you think are more likely than not to happen? 
you know, this is, this is, you know, the op-ed in the Wall Street Journal was, that was the task at hand. And as I was writing it, I kept kind of reminding myself, this may not happen. This is what I want to happen. There's a difference. <laughs> so, so my bias is kind of creeping into this conversation. What I hope happens and what I think might happen is that parents will now see how important it is to educate their children because they're, they're now on the front lines doing it. And they may want to have more power, you know, in the post-coronavirus uh, era, how, how their children are educated. Maybe they'll want more choices. Maybe they'll, they'll see the power of digital learning in a, different, in a different way. And so I think more parental engagement is more likely to happen just because of this traumatic experience of being at home with your children teaching them for the last, what will be end up being probably three months, right? Or almost four months. I think that's a game changer. The other thing I'd say is we've not moved to a customized learning environment. Someone did a study that suggested that 25% of all juniors in high school are capable of taking college level work and 4% do, you know, through AP, IB, or dual enrollment, maybe even less than 4%. Well, that kind of begs the question, why do we have a system that is designed, you know, was designed 150 years ago, a governance model that hasn't really changed? Shouldn't we be unleashing the capabilities of, of high achieving kids to be able to, to, be able to access uh, the kind of education to, to get them to accelerate their learning? And why do we have so many kids that are lagging behind? That to me is the big challenge of our times is how do we engage parents and how do we move to a system that is more customized for each, each student? And I think this period of reflection that will take place because of this intensive period where, you know, moms and dads are the, the primary teachers of their children could be a catalyst for that. Now, will it happen? I don't know. It's pure speculation. It's my hope that it happens out of a crisis does come, you know, significant opportunities if we seize them. Well, I, I won't penalize you for having a, a little bit of optimism as your bias. That seems okay to me. Uh, <laughs> so to back up and, and zoom out from more specific education questions to just the general effects of the pandemic, I'm curious. I remember in January talking with a friend uh, about sort of the hyper-partisan nature, not just of our politics, but of just the culture generally and how polarized things seem. And this friend sort of said glibly and, and half meaning it, uh, hey, what we really need in America is we need a war or an alien invasion or something that will unite us and reveal the central things that we all hold dear rather than the things that divide us. I wonder if this pandemic is that sort of uh, event that could alleviate the hyperpartisanship that we've been used to for several years. Do you think that silver lining is a possibility? I, I, I hope you're right. I don't sense, if you, look at, if you look at Washington, I don't sense that the hyper-partisanship has gone away. Yes, the, you know, the Democrats and Republicans held hands together and, and uh, spent more money than anybody could have ever imagined in three different stimulus support appropriations, unprecedented, and at a, at a speed that's pretty remarkable. I'm not sure that's a leading indicator where we're going, though. I don't know. It's, it's hard to tell. But if you look at local governments, local communities, you look at how people are responding to the crisis from a 
societal point of view, look at the governors around the country. Yes, I think that the hyperpartisanship has subsided dramatically. And people are rolling up their sleeves and, and solving problems. Washington is a unique situation. Our political culture there is far worse than it is in most places. Take Florida, for example. You know, Republicans dominate the legislature. We have a Republican governor. But they debate issues with civility. They allow voices on the left to be heard. Generally, conservatives win, you know, because they win elections. They, they win the policy debates. That's the way democracy works. But it's done with a higher degree of civility than I think happens in Washington, D.C. So I think the last place we'll see a change will be D.C. And it will be it'll be really beneficial for our country to see that happen. But I've long ago stopped obsessing about D.C. And I, I encourage people to stop watching cable news, stop, you know, obsessing about who's winning and who's losing on a particular day. The obsession in D.C. is really not a reflection of where we are as a country, I don't think. Well, Governor, I appreciate you spending some time with us. I have, I have one last question before uh, we run out of time, and that's about what advice you would give to governors. And in, in particular, I just think, you know, we're all hungering to go back to normal, right? Everybody wants to go back to normal. Well, new, we're, we're probably headed back to a new normal in 2021, not to what we were used to in 2019. Yep. And, and my question for you is what advice would you give to governors as they sort of lead and also try and prepare their constituents and serve them as they try and adapt to that new normal that we don't really know what it's going to look like yet. Yeah, I mean, I think the advice I would give is to dedicate yourself to molding that new normal, creating the contours of what that new normal looks like. Put aside some of the things that may have been why you ran to begin with and realize this is an extraordinary opportunity to serve people when they truly need it. And I think, I mean, that advice is, that's, people are not waiting for me to tell them that. That's what's happening. And it's inspiring to me to see it. I, I honestly think to anticipate what the world looks like a month from now, three months from now, a year from now, and lead towards that is why most people, you know, really sign up to be public servants, to be politicians, to run for office. And this is a chance to actually act on that in a way that is so meaningful for so many people. So every chance that you have, I think, um, have a servant's heart. That would be my advice. It's not about you. It's about the people you're trying to help. And restoring that kind of servant leadership is something that we desperately need in our country. Well, Governor, that sounds like a good place to end. Thanks very much for coming on the report card with me. You bet. Stay safe. Thanks for listening to the report card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guest, Governor Jeb Bush. Thanks also to our producers who make this podcast possible, Matt Rice and Tyler Hoover. Take a minute to subscribe to the report card on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, be sure to leave a review to help other folks find the podcast please send us your comments, questions, and topic suggestions at ed.podcast at AEI.org. That's all for this week. I'm Matt Mollis.